What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Egyptian History Podcast, The History of Egypt. Episode 60, Tutmosid Family Values, our third part in the life and times of the I, one of the most important kings of Egypt to ever live. Today's episode is brought to you by Susanna Butler, Jerome Van Epps, and Anne Roberts. Thank you folks for your support. Your help keeps the show running, and we are very grateful. By the way, stick around at the end of the episode for a special announcement. In approximately 1515 BCE, Tutmos I was stomping up and down the riverlands of Nubia. He was slaughtering locals, carving his name on landmarks so people knew who he was, and generally making a nuisance of himself in the name of exploration and conquest. He was also undertaking a few small projects, like fixing a canal in the north of the country, which was built by his predecessor Senusaret III in the Middle Kingdom, but had since fallen into disrepair. With those projects and the campaign out of the way, the king was now slowly making his way back to Egypt. In his absence, big projects were taking shape. At home in Thebes, the machinery of government was ticking along quite well without the king. The aged matriarch of the old family, Amos Nefertari, was still managing the priesthood in her role as the god's wife of Amun, or essentially the high priestess. Day to day, this elderly woman managed the priests and acolytes whose job it was to dress and purify the sacred statues. They would make offerings in the king's name, which Amos Nefertari would theoretically partake in. But that can't have been too easy, because the queen was actually now in her late sixties, and time, obviously, was taking its toll. Fortunately, she was not alone in the government. Tutmose's two wives, Ames and Mutneferet, were taking care of business in their own way as well. Each woman managed the affairs of her branch of the family. Ames looked after her daughter, Hatshepsut, and Mutneferet looked after the three princes, including the heir to the throne, Amun Mos. Together, these three women handled all the major affairs of the royal household, and they groomed the children for their future careers as rulers and officials. On top of that, they kept the ship of state on course while Tutmose was absent. Now, outside the palace, Tutmose's loyal servants were seeing to it that his grand designs and projects were being realised, even when he was not there. One of these, of course, was his royal tomb, which was underway. The other was a very special construction project, which had some very important symbolism. One of the largest projects in Tutmose's Thebes was work now being undertaken at Karnak Temple. Here, outside the shrines and the sanctums that were being used by Amos Nefertari and her priests, 
labourers and architects were hard at work on an ambitious project to expand the temple and to improve it. Essentially, to turn it into a monument worthy of the Theban kingdom, which was now, really, a Theban empire. Karnak was hundreds of years old by this point in time. The kings of Dynasty Twelve, way back in the Middle Kingdom, had started it, building shrines and chapels to their favoured gods, like Amun and Montu. They had done these over the course of generations, and there were some pretty good works, especially some major chapels. But they all kind of lacked one thing. None of them were grand enough for Tutmose's kingdom. So, not long after he ascended the throne, Tutmose had summoned his chief architect to the palace. This was a guy named Ineni, and Ineni will be our friend for the next episode or two. He was chief architect under Tutmose and his successor, and he had worked his way up the administrative ladder into some really nice jobs. Jobs like chief of the necropolis, where he was responsible for the king's tomb, and overseer of the granaries of Amun, which basically meant manager of the storehouses for Karnak Temple. These were pretty good, honest administrative roles, and eventually they brought him to Tutmose's personal attention. Now, Ineni had a new project. Tutmose wanted Karnak to be improved, to be embellished, and made worthy of the king's own importance, or let's say splendour. For this, Ineni had to design some seriously impressive works. The first order of business was to embellish the front of the temple, to make it more grandiose and impressive, more fitting for the House of Amun and the centre of the Theban Empire. Ineni was going to build new pylons, so that the gateway of the temple dominated the skyline and imposed awe on all who entered. Now, a pylon is a bit like a pyramid, but with a flat top. The base is rectangular instead of square, and they are built in pairs with a gateway between. You sort of might think of them as towers, adapted to a religious context, that gives the temple an air of security and immensity. They tend to dwarf anyone who enters, and it's quite hard to walk past the pylons of Karnak without feeling that you're leaving one world and entering a whole new one, which was, of course, precisely the idea. Now, before Tutmose I, the temple of Karnak was more what you'd call impressive than monumental. It was a small precinct, mostly comprised of chapels and courtyards and open spaces, and most of these had been built during the Middle Kingdom. Some of these chapels were outstanding, like the White Chapel of Senusaret, but overall the temple still lacked that sense of majesty which Tutmose apparently wanted. Well, the pylons were a good way to fix that. The pylons built by Ineni, called the Fifth and Fourth Pylons, don't survive much today except in their foundations, but that's more than enough for archaeologists, most notably Luc Gabold of the French National Centre for Scientific Research, to reconstruct the monument in models and digitally. What we see now tells us that Tutmose's project turned the temple from a small complex, which was interesting but not necessarily impressive, into something much grander, much more worthy of the god that had brought so much victory and splendour to Thebes. But the pylons were not enough, and Ineni was not done by a long shot. The pylons flanking the gateways were attached to a large wall which now went all the way around the Karnak sanctuaries. This had two effects. First of all, it gave the whole area a sense of monumentality, impressiveness. It also separated the inner temple off from the outside world, 
and transformed the site from a collection of shrines in the middle of the city into the beginnings of the temple that we know today. This was an incredibly important step, indicating that security and secrecy were becoming far more prevalent than ever in the idea of the royal cult. It's something we saw last episode with Tutmose's new hidden tomb in the Valley of the Kings, and it seems to be a bit of a trend with this ruler. Wall things off, separate the royal from the common, and the sacred from the mundane. In other words, exclusivity and separateness were the orders of the day. But maybe there was also a religious purpose. The new pylons and the walls created a sort of natural courtyard within the temple, a large open space hidden from the outside world which offered all kinds of opportunities for religious gatherings and sacred festivals. Tutmos and Ineni, who were aware of this, decided to decorate this courtyard appropriately. So they commissioned a whole suite of statues depicting the king as Osiris, and these were set up around the walls of the courtyard. Any who entered the space were thus greeted by the face of the king, kind of serene and smiling, in what can only be described as his future role as the king of the underworld. In other words, they designed the courtyard as a space to celebrate Tutmos through eternity. It wasn't just a monument to the living king, it was a monument to him for all time. This was a pretty clever bit of design, and something that later kings were going to copy a lot. But again, Ineni was still not done. Outside the pylon and the courtyard, the architect now decided to place some flagpoles. Big deal, right? What's special about that? Well, let me tell you. The flagpoles built by Ineni were huge. In fact, they were taller than the pylons themselves, which meant that they had to be sourced from outside of Egypt, most likely from Lebanon or Ethiopia. So Ineni was really reliant on the extensive trade networks of the ancient world to get the job done. And if you tried to calculate the value of these things, well, they were a, a pretty hefty investment, I can tell you that. High-quality wood is not common in the Nile Valley. To get sturdy timber, the Egyptians always had to look outside of their homeland, to the Near East and to East Africa. So acquiring enough wood to make these enormous flagpoles was a big job, far bigger in some ways than the pylons themselves. At least those were just made of sandstone. No, these flagpoles were a serious testament to the wealth of the kingdom and to the distances that Tutmos could reach to get the materials he wanted. On top of that, they were probably quite beautiful. They sat on stone bases, and they tapered slowly as they rose to increase their stability. At the top, brightly coloured streamers waved in the breeze, and the flagpoles were probably some of the most visible markers on the horizon of the city. At least, they were the most visible part until Ineni put his next round of projects into action. To complete his round of works at Karnak, Ineni now commissioned his artisans to acquire two new obelisks. Obelisks had been built throughout Egyptian history, they weren't a particularly new monument, unlike the pylons. But they are difficult things to get. First of all, they're usually carved of a single piece of stone, which means that any artisan working in a quarry has to find a seam of just the right kind of stone which is large enough to carve the obelisk. There was only really one place that the kings could go to get the obelisks they wanted, in the type of stone they wanted. The type of stone they wanted was granite, and the granite mostly came from the region of Aswan, or Elephantine. So, Ineni and his artisans went off down the river to Elephantine. There, they came to the granite quarries and began to carve out two new huge obelisks. When I say huge, 
I mean it. These two obelisks were about 20 meters tall, or 65 feet high. First of all, finding a piece of stone large enough to do that is incredible. Finding two is even better. But Ineni did it. The obelisks were carved out carefully out of the stone. They were then hauled down to the riverbank, where they were loaded onto ships, constructed specifically for the purpose. These ships were huge, and we know this because Ineni specifically mentioned it in his autobiography. He said that the king had commissioned a boat of 120 cubits in length, which is about 206 feet, or 65 meters, so seriously large. In fact, it was so large that both obelisks could go on it at the same time. That's pretty efficient on the one hand, but it's also a testament to just how many resources the king put at the disposal of the architect. I mean, none of this was cheap. It basically seems like Tutmos had told Ineni, do what you have to do, spare no expense, and get it done. Well, Ineni did it, and the result was a huge pair of obelisks erected in front of the pylon at Karnak. They stood immensely tall, towering above the Theban skyline, and visible from miles around. Just to improve on that, the king also gave Ineni permission to cap the obelisks with metal, specifically a metal alloy made of mixing gold and silver, which is called electrum. This basically meant that the tops of the obelisks were almost like the tops of the pyramids way back in the day. They shone in the sun and were visible from miles around. Not only was this beautiful, it probably also helped on a religious level, because by reflecting the sunlight, the obelisks may have attracted the attention of the god Amun-Ra, to whom Karnak Temple was dedicated. So by the time all was said and done, Ineni had seriously embellished the Karnak Temple. It had gone from a small collection of shrines, beautiful and impressive, but not quite monumental, to something worthy of an empire, and worthy of a god that had given that empire its impetus. Effectively, Karnak Temple was starting to become the monument we know and love, an immense, utterly immense record of kingly power and divine patronage. And by the time it was finished, about seven or eight years into the king's reign, Karnak Temple was really becoming the monument he had envisioned. All of these works were good examples of the king's attitude to kingship as a whole. In fact, they are a good example of the 18th dynasty's attitude to policy overall, at least according to John Hopkins Egyptologist Betsy M. Bryan. An expert in the 18th dynasty, Bryan describes the mindset of the first three kings very succinctly when she says, quote, The main character of the 18th dynasty had been established. Its clear devotion to the cult of Amun-Ra at Karnak, its successful military conquests in Nubia aimed at expanding Egypt southwards for material rewards, and its closed nuclear family, which avoided political or economic claims on the kingship. Tutmose I's reign is the epitome of all of these things, and nowhere is that clear than in how he managed his family affairs. We've already met the close allies of the royal household, people like Amos Ibana and Paheri, members of a family from al Kab who served loyally as soldiers, governors, and tutors to the royal children, or Ineni, the architect, whose family would continue to serve long after he passed away. These men did a vast amount of work in securing the royal family's authority, and I think you can say that the early 18th dynasty kingship was a lot stronger for their service. But there is an element I haven't touched on yet as much as I'd like, the way that Tutmos managed his own children 
and how he organized their early careers. So, let's get into that. Around the middle of his reign, somewhere about 1510 BCE, Tutmosis was afforded a rare opportunity to advance his children's status and increase his own political power. The situation, unfortunately, was both a blessing and a sad occasion, for it related to the death of a close personal ally. Sometime around 1510, maybe earlier, the last significant personality of the old royal family passed away. The Hemet Nesutweret, great royal wife, queen Amosa Nefertari, now stepped off the mortal coil and into eternity. She was greeted in the field of reeds by her husband, Amosa, the liberator of Egypt, and by her son Amunhotep, with whom she had shared supreme royal authority in life, and with whom she was remembered as a god by many in Thebes. As she stepped into the kingdom of Osiris, the queen took on a new role as an eternal member of the divine pantheon. She was remembered, respected, and venerated for more than 200 years making her one of the most treasured queens in the whole new kingdom. As far as afterlives go, that is a great one. The queen was about 70 when she died, and we actually have her mummy. It has survived to this day. When she died, the queen was incredibly aged, and she was starting to go bald. In fact, she actually wore a wig of plaits of human hair tied to strings. These were placed on her mummy and survived today. Unfortunately, her mummy was damaged by tomb robbers. who accidentally broke off her hands in their quest to get at the gold rings. Her mummy was found within her immense coffin, and when I say immense, I mean immense. It was so large that it actually contained two coffins within it, that of Amosa Nefertari and that of a later king, Ramesses III. That's how big it is. You can see a photo of it on our website where you'll see that compared to a normal-sized human male, this thing is huge. Whether that says that Amosa Nefertari was particularly well respected or just that she was incredibly rich says something about the life this woman led and how she was viewed both in her life and in her death. Essentially, Thutmoses I gave the queen full honors when she passed away. It was only appropriate that he should do so, for she had been the guiding hand of three generations of kings and had helped assist him in his own reign. The queen's passing was an event of great solemnity. She was one of the last remaining survivors of the family that had liberated Egypt from the rule of the Hyksos foreigners. She had witnessed those events firsthand, and as she was laid into her tomb and her coffin sealed, her death marked more than just a personal loss for the royal family, but the passing of an entire generation. Her death was remembered thus: The divine consort Amosa Nefertari, justified with the great lord of the West Osiris, flew to heaven. Those are the words of the architect Enneni's son, who was alive at this time and recorded the events in his autobiography. This suggests to us that Queen Amosa Nefertari was not just respected within the royal family, but respected throughout the state. It's not hard to see why. She had been a constant presence in the royal family and the government for decades, and her influence must have touched on every aspect of the kingdom's recent success. So, Amosa Nefertari, farewell. We salute you and you are honored. Aside from her posthumous reputation, Amosa Nefertari's death also had a very practical effect because it left a vacancy in the priesthood of Karnak. The queen, as I've said, had spent decades representing the royal family in the temple, 
bearing the title of God's Wife of Amun. In this capacity, she had stood in for three kings at daily rituals, and managed affairs among the priesthood. I can only imagine what secrets of her life the walls of Karnak now hold, for in her lifetime, the sacred shrines must have become old friends, a second home away from the palace. Now, they would pass to someone else. The royal family needed a new female representative in the job, and Tutmos knew exactly who he was going to choose. He wanted someone old enough to do the job, but young enough to guarantee a few decades of service and some degree of continuity. Controlling Karnak Temple, its priesthood and its wealth, was important, and the family needed a reliable choice. Really, there was only one choice, the teenage princess Hatshepsut, daughter of Tutmos and Ahmes, and future queen, was nominated for the job, and soon after Ahmose and Nefertari died, the young lady was confirmed in the new role. This new job made Hatshepsut very powerful almost overnight. As the royal family's liaison in the temple, she became the go-between for Tutmos whenever he wanted to enact decisions that affected the priesthood. Hatshepsut became the essential link between the royal household, who didn't have time to go to the temple every day, and the cult of Amun, and she seems to have taken this job quite seriously. It's easy to get blindsided by Hatshepsut's later career, and forget that when she took this temple job, that future was as unknown to her as yours is to you. On her first day in the role, she would have been nervous, uncertain of herself, and working hard to remember every little element of the rituals that she had rehearsed. She certainly wasn't thinking about a kingship she didn't know she would bear, or a career she could not foresee. In fact, the thing that was probably most weighing on her mind was the face and spirit of the god to whom she was now, theoretically, married. As god's wife of Amun, Hatshepsut now enjoyed a privileged relationship with the favourite god of the Theban 18th dynasty. Amun, or Amun-Ra, the one who is hidden, sat enthroned in his shrine, deep within the halls of Karnak. Hidden away and secluded from the outside world by the walls and pylons that her earthly father, Tatmos, had commissioned, Hatshepsut came face to face with her divine consort. Incense wreathed the air, oil lamps flickered, and in the shadows of Karnak, the little princess began a relationship with the god that would shape her life for the next thirty years. That is a lot of pressure for a first date. Outside the temple, work continued on those new walls and pylons, and Nenny's surveyors and foremen, not to mention hundreds of labourers, were hard at work. Day by day, the temple grew, and between the two groups, Hatshepsut and the priests inside, and Nenny and the builders outside, Karnak in 1510 BC was pretty much the epicentre of the royal state. But the king himself was frustrated, sad even, for events in his personal life had taken a distressing turn. In the sad tradition of the ancient world, two of Tutmose's children had died young. Well before their time, the two eldest princes, Amun Mose and Wajmose, had fallen prey to illness or accident, and now lay in state, mummified and entombed. Their deaths were a devastating loss. I assume Tutmose loved his children as much as any ancient father. That is to say, the biological imperative to love and nurture them was probably present, even if cultural norms meant that one didn't, as a rule, become too attached to your children, if for no other reason than that premature death was an occupational hazard of family life. But let's give the king the benefit of the doubt, and assume that he loved his sons. Well, their loss must have been a terrible shock. They were not infants, they were grown. Amun Mose may have been anywhere between 20 and 30 years old, and they had begun to take on low-ranking positions in the state. 
So their death was a double whammy, the loss of a child and the loss of an experienced and trained heir. The king, hoping to build a long-lasting lineage, was back at square one. Now, more than ever, the pressure was on to secure the family line, and there was only one male left, the youngest son of Tutmos and Mut-Neferet, Tutmos II. In 1510 BCE, Tutmos II was about 20 years old. In episode 58, I suggested that he was born early in his father's reign, but that was a mistake. Why? Well, because in the short time that he did serve as king, Tutmos II managed to father a son. Unless he was a very pubescent ten-year-old, it doesn't seem possible that he was born any later than the reign of Amunhotep I. So, he was about 15 to 20 when he came to the throne. This shouldn't have been a problem, but it was. Mostly because the king had not been trained for this at any point. His elder brothers had been the clear successors, and he only came to the throne by accident. Unfortunately, this meant he didn't really have the kind of training the other two princes had been endowed with. So power was probably wielded, actually, by his queen. To secure the succession and bolster Tutmos II's position, the young prince was married to his half-sister, the god's wife of Amun, Hatshepsut. She was older than her husband, probably in her mid to late twenties. With the new young king still learning his way, Hatshepsut basically took the leading position of the royal pair. It was the best match available, it connected two branches of the family, and meant that both queens, Amos and Mutneferet, had a child on the throne of Egypt. This brought together the two branches of the family in a way that was basically a best solution for everyone. Had the two branches not united, it's possible there would have been some conflict down the line. Peace in our time? Well, we'll see. Tutmos I's accomplished life came to its end around 1505 BCE. He was about 50 years old, approximately 154 centimetres, or 5 feet tall, and had ruled the kingdom, no, the empire, for about 13 to 14 years. In his life, and long after, Tutmos I was incredibly influential. His various accomplishments and policies helped define the nature of the new 18th dynasty, at least as much as his two predecessors. Maybe even more than them, because between his massively successful campaigns, his projects at Karnak, and his tomb in the Valley of the Kings, he really set the template for the rest of the dynasty. In fact, he set the stage for conquerors, diplomats, and builders, for priestly kings, and even for heretics. Without Tutmos, I think, the 18th dynasty would have taken a very different path. The only question, now that he was dead, was, how would his son repeat his greatness? Would Tutmos II accomplish things to compare with his father? Would he be a legendary heir to the royal house of Thebes? Short answer? No. Tutmos II led a short and undistinguished life. In the ten years or so that he reigned, he completed just one campaign to Nubia, and only commissioned one significant building project, and even that had to be completed by his successor, Tutmos III. Tutmos II's biggest contribution to history was the fact that he fathered this young prince, Tutmos III, via a concubine named Isis. He did not produce any children with his wife Hatshepsut, a situation that was going to cause a few problems down the line. Beyond this, we know almost nothing about his life. We do know, thanks to his mummy, that the king was unfortunate enough to suffer a skin disease. His body is mottled with patches of scabs, 
suggesting that he didn't live a particularly comfortable life. He died around the age of 30, and probably didn't lead a very happy life. In fact, this king is so little known that historians are really not even sure how long he reigned. Arguments range from 14 years to just 4. I've settled for a somewhat middle ground of about 10, and I've based this on the age of the mummy, which is about 30. So, that was the end of the successor of Thutmose I, and unfortunately, we just know nothing about him. Looking back on the past 30 years of Egyptian history, our story now comes to a pivot point, a moment of incredible change. Ever since Armosa launched his war of liberation, the Theban kingdom had gone from strength to strength. If you wanted to draw a line graph of their military strength, it was a solid upwards curve year by year. Political stability? Upwards curve, with one small blip when Amunhotep died. Wealth? Ha, you bet that was an upwards curve. Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine were sending tribute regularly, and Nubia had been cracked open like an egg. Finally, the cultural prosperity of the middle and upper classes was back on track. In short, everything was going rather well. This prosperity made it the perfect time for a uniquely talented individual to reshape the nature of Theban kingship. As Thutmose II passed away, the power of the throne came to his child son, Thutmose III. Also known as the Napoleon of Egypt, Thutmose III would, over a reign of 54 years, push the kingdom to a height never seen before. So, the young king got started. Oh wait, what? What do you mean his stepmother won't let him? Hatshepsut's doing what? Ah, shit. 